This is Arab Talk on KPOO 89.5 FM in San Francisco. This is Arab Talk with Jess and Jamal. I'm Jess Khanam. And I'm Jamal Dejani. Well, Jamal, of all the predictions that we've made here on Arab Talk, the two that I'm most uh, sorry I was right on was the election of Donald Trump and now the fall of Kabul so quickly from the Taliban. In less than 11 days, uh, the Taliban have completely taken over the totality of Afghanistan, including Kabul, and are now in charge of running the entire country. We're going to be uh, talking about that, but you also did an incredible interview with uh, Heather Barr, who's the head of the Women's Division of Human Rights Watch, who's going to be speaking, who spoke with you from uh, Pakistan about the plight of uh, Afghan women and what's going to be happening under the Taliban. And then we'll get a chance to kind of unpack that. There's also, you know, an interesting sighting here in the Bay Area, Jamal. I know we keep our eyes open for wildlife that kind of gets in and out of the Bay Area, but there was a sighting of uh, former Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu at SFO. So despite his telling uh, his citizens, you know, not to travel, he found him in the middle of, and we're going to talk about this, another huge kind of outbreak of COVID uh, among Israelis. Benjamin Netanyahu found himself traveling to San Francisco anyway. So do as I say, not as I do, I guess, thing. But uh, we have a lot to talk about today. That's right. Just, uh, of course, uh, he's here in the United States for two weeks on vacation when telling everyone not not to travel. Yeah, we have a great interview with Heather Barr, uh, the interim co-director of the Women's Rights Division at Human Rights Watch. She spoke to me a, a few minutes ago from Jalalabad, Pakistan, and this is very important. This is where most of the Afghan refugees now, uh, I mean, basically go to, uh, you know, to Pakistan. Let's uh, watch this interview. The Taliban have seized power in Afghanistan two weeks before the U.S. was set to complete its troop withdrawal after a costly two-decade war. The insurgents stormed across the country, capturing all major cities in a matter of days, as Afghan security forces trained and equipped by the United States and its allies melted away. Afghans who worked with the United States and its allies over the, twi- over the past 20 years feel abandoned. Women and girls are the most vulnerable group. Heather Barr is the interim co-director of the Women's Rights Division at Human Rights Watch. She recently published an article in Inkstick Media entitled The Fragility of Women's Rights in Afghanistan. Welcome to Arab Talk, Heather. Thank you. Let me begin by the first question you pose in your article. Now that the Taliban are back, what does that mean for women's rights? Nothing good. Um, so, I mean, I think everyone is is pretty familiar with what life was like under the Taliban the last time around from 1996 to 2001. Um, almost all education for girls and women was banned. Um, women were banned from almost all employment. The only exception really was um, some healthcare workers. Um, women were not permitted to leave their house without a maharam, a male family member, escorting them. 
they were required to wear the burqa um, and uh, crimes that such as zina um, and other crimes were, were punished for, for women and men, but including for women with um, punishments such as stoning and lashing. So, but the important thing is that um, this didn't all end in 2001. You know, the Taliban has been gradually gaining control of more and more of, of Afghanistan over quite a number of years now, um, and, and very rapidly in the last few weeks. And we see that in, in some of those places, they've already been implementing policies that are quite similar to the ones I've just described. So we've been seeing uh, the Taliban spokesperson on, on different channels. They've been very active, including, of course, uh, social media saying that uh, women will be respected according to Sharia law. Um, can we trust uh, the Taliban with women's rights? No. <laughs> um, I don't think there's a single Afghan woman who believes what they're saying. Um, they held a press conference on Tuesday. It was their first press conference after since seizing Kabul. Um, and, and, you know, I think they, they're trying very hard to seem statesmanlike at the moment. They're trying hard to convince the world that, that they are different and that they should be recognized this time and treated as legitimate government. And I think that, you know, and so there was a lot in that press conference about how they wouldn't host, uh, you know, terrorist groups attacking other countries. They wouldn't retaliate against um, those who had opposed them, including people who had been in the army and the Afghan army fighting against them. And they said that they would respect women's rights. They said that women would have equal rights to men, but they included um, the same caveats that they have been including sort of whenever they talk about women's rights for, for many years now. So they say they'll have all the rights that they're entitled to in the framework of Islam. Um, they'll be able to participate in health and in education in accordance with our rules. And what we know is that their interpretation of Islam is a very fringe interpretation way outside the mainstream. And that's presumably what they thought they were doing in 1996 to 2001 as well, is respecting the rights that they believe exist. So also you wrote in your article, Afghan women find themselves in the untenable position of looking for help to the international uh, community. Yesterday, just yesterday, the United States joined 20 countries and the European Union in demanding that the rights of Afghan women be protected and pledging to send humanitarian aid and other support to ensure that their voices can be heard. Is this for show? I mean, really, what can the United States, uh, the EU, all the allies that pretty much abandoned Afghanistan can do now remotely? So there are some things that they can do. Um, the question is, I mean, they don't have they don't have a ton of options in terms of things they can do, but there are some things they can do. But but that they all require political will, and one of my big concerns is about whether that political will exists or not. Um, you know, this is a moment when um, the U.S. and other countries that sent troops are are running for the exit. They're sprinting at this point, and and they've been humiliated. Um, and by, by the Taliban's military victory. And I think there's a, a huge desire among some of these countries or all of these countries maybe to, to forget that the whole thing ever happened. And I'm really particularly shocked by the tone that um, US President Joe Biden has been taking about Afghanistan. He seems sort of personally angry somehow at Afghans 
um, in a way that, that that's really strange to me and that really doesn't seem to indicate that he understands at all that that this is a country full of human beings with you know hopes and dreams and and who you know are are at risk of death because of decisions that that he's making and in terms of the the statement about humanitarian aid i mean you'll know that the us government has frozen all of its aid to afghanistan and also convinced the imf to freeze its aid as well and my concern about that is you know of course we want to exert pressure on the taliban however possible but over 75% of the afghan government's budget comes from international donors and so when you cut off that funding stream actually what you're doing is closing the hospital and closing the school and ending the food distribution program um and the people hurt by that will not be the taliban it'll be afghans who die without medical care and die without food and go without education so some are making the argument that uh what we have now is a generation of women in afghanistan and around the world who have been betrayed by america's cynical use of women's rights to sell a brutal and pointless war uh your thoughts on this i'm from the us i was living in new york on 9/11 um watched the towers fall went to a went to a protest in union square a couple of days later a, a peace vigil um and i remember very well how the images of afghan women and the stories about how they were being abused by the taliban were used to sell the war um you know they they went to exceptional lengths laura bush gave a radio address i think it was the first time that a first lady had substituted for the president and giving a radio address in in the uk sherry blair gave a speech there are others other examples as well and so it was very clear that the plight of women was used as a propaganda tool um now of course you know any any thinking person understood then and now that this was not a war that was about women's rights um that there were other reasons for the war but i still think that using that messaging and having kind of utilized women in that way creates some responsibility um and and it's very enraging to see no one no one seeming to acknowledge that responsibility now certainly not joe biden well i mean uh, going back to joe biden i mean this is his argument his argument is saying look we've been there for 20 years uh, perhaps now 60% of the american public wants us out of afghanistan we don't want to lose more men and and women in afghanistan we've done everything we've spent 2 trillion dollars in afghanistan what i'm doing here is 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 right what went wrong in in your opinion like after 20 years what went wrong that the afghans are not able to take care of their own country i mean it's a, it's a very very long list of things that went wrong um you know i mean the us early on partnered with warlords um who had horrible histories of human rights abuses the us helped to crush efforts at um at accountability for war crimes which might have helped to kind of bring some healing to the country um the the corruption that the us has blamed the afghan government 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 so much for um you know was also sort of um nurtured in some ways by the us or or facilitated by how the us was was spending money in afghanistan um so i, I think it's a very long list of reasons and i also think that when you've played 
the kind of hands-on role that the U.S. has played in Afghanistan, then, then you, in a sense, are a colonial power. And you can't just flip a switch and say, nothing to do with me. You know, anything that happened over the last 20 years was really nothing to do with me. The U.S. built an army in Afghanistan, and they built it in their own image. And when they left, it didn't have the, the tools it needed to, to function. Um, and so refusing to take any responsibility for that, refusing to acknowledge that, and, and, and you know, and then leaving the kind of situation that we see now with the, the crisis with people trying desperately to leave the country and, and being unable to is, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's damning and it's a tragedy. Well, uh, I know you spent, uh, you're currently in Pakistan now, and you've, you've spent six years in Afghanistan, if I'm correct. And so you know the country very well, you know the people, you know uh, the women uh, there. Talk to us about the women there. I mean, uh, I mean their resiliency, uh, their desire for freedom. So one of the only positive things that's happened this week is um, this small group of women protesting in Kabul a couple of days ago. Um, I mean, have you ever seen more courageous people in the world? You know, and I think, um, you know, and, and there are a lot of other Afghan women as well who are saying, like, it's my country. It's my country just as much as theirs. I'm going to stay. I'm going to fight. Um, that was a quote from a, an interview on, on television today with the activist who works on education, a lot of other women's rights activists that I know are, are sort of taking a similar line, you know, they're not going to run, um, they're going to stay and they're going to fight. Afghan women um, have achieved so much in the last 20 years. Um, and in the last 20 years, there's a whole new generation of Afghan women. And they, they grew up hearing about the Taliban. They grew up knowing about how the Taliban um, had affected the lives of their, their mothers and their older sisters and their grandmothers. You know, they grew up around women who weren't able to study because the Taliban were in power. And I think it's, I think it's, it's almost part of the psyche of this generation of young Afghan women that like they were going to go out and succeed and have all of the opportunities that, that had been taken away from Afghan women in the past. And, and you see they're, they're really on fire, you know, there've been all these kind of amazing, amazing things that, that young Afghan women have done. There's the robotics team, they were inventing ventilators, there's the football team, there's the orchestra, there's, you know, just um, tons and tons of, of smart young filmmakers and journalists and, and all sorts of things. And, and what's happened to them is that, um, it's all been taken away from them overnight and they're kind of dumped back into this nightmare that they thought was part of, you know, their country's unhappy history. Um, so the women who are, are standing up and, and fighting this, um, I mean, as I said, I think they're incredibly courageous, but I think they, they desperately need the international community to stand by them because they're also potentially doomed if that doesn't happen. So what uh, uh, women's advocacy groups uh, worldwide, uh, like your organization, Human Rights Watch, uh, are capable of doing now for the women in Afghanistan? Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's hard. I mean, right now, everybody is just focused on trying to get people out. Like every single person I think who's ever worked in Afghanistan, every organization that's ever worked in Afghanistan is 
is receiving calls and emails and texts all day from people who are trying to escape and can't, or people who are trying to help someone escape and are, are finding that they're unable to. Um, so that's really um, consuming everyone at the moment. Um, but in the longer term, what we have to do is we have to, we have to watch the Taliban all the time, every day, um, and, and see what they're actually doing and document it. And if they're continuing to engage in human rights abuses, we have to make sure that the world can't ignore that and world leaders can't ignore that. Well, I mean, there is a desire. I mean, the images that uh, I'm sure you saw and everybody's seen uh, at the airport were horrific, people trying to escape the country. And, and really, I mean, you want to help people there, but you really don't want all the Afghans to leave, right? So you need to, I mean, there'll be a major brain drain, especially if educated women and men leave the country. Can anyone work with the Taliban, like international organizations, the UN? Do you think, I mean, I mean, now they look kind of pretty peaceful on TV, aside from certain incidents saying, oh, we, we want to prevent terrorism, we want to protect women's rights. But, I mean, is it possible to see the country functioning uh, not as a failed state, but, but as a real country? I mean, it has to, it has to. And that's a whole other question is, are the Taliban actually capable of running a country? If you leave aside all of their kind of, um, you know, horrible actions in terms of abusing human rights, can, can they actually run a country? Can they, can they run schools? Can they run hospitals? Can they keep the electricity on? Things like that. And I don't think there's much evidence to think that they can. Um, but I, I guess everyone's about to find out because Afghans have been thrown into to this horrible experiment. I want to say something about the, the people leaving the country or trying to leave the country. I don't think most of those people want to leave forever. Those people aren't trying to move to California or something and, and set up shop and become Californian for the most part. Some of them might be, but most of them want to be safe while they watch to see what what's happening in their country and then come home as soon as they as soon as they can um you know afghans love their country as as most people do and i think that's part of why um you know the largest populations of afghan refugees have always been in this region in pakistan and iran is because people are always waiting every day for the day that they can go home so if you had a message to the international community, and in particular to President Biden, what would be your message? Um, I mean, I've kind of said this already, but, um, you know, this you created this mess and you own it. Um, and it's your mess to help solve. And, you know, you, the U.S. and, and all of these other governments um, have, have talked for many years about, um, you know, how much they care about Afghan women if you go and look at, you know, the USAID website, maybe maybe not anymore, but it, it used to just be covered in inspiring photos of Afghan schoolgirls. Um, so that responsibility doesn't go away overnight. Um, and, and everyone who's been involved in Afghanistan for the last 20 years owes it to um, feel responsible for what happens in the next 20 years. Heather Barr, thank you for coming on Arab Talk. Thank you. Well, that's the voice of uh, Heather Barr, interim uh, co-director of the Women's Division of Human Rights Watch, you know, basically speaking with you, Jamal, from Pakistan and Jalalabad. Uh, 
obviously deeply concerned about what's going to happen to women in Afghanistan and in Kabul especially who have been fighting for and advocating uh, for women's rights. You know, there are a lot of women in Afghanistan, Jamal, who are under the age of 20, especially in and around Kabul, who never were exposed to Taliban rule. And so this is a potentially very frightening and difficult time for Afghan women. The Afghan country, everybody in Afghanistan, despite the Taliban saying to their through their social media, they want women to be in government. They women can go to school, but everything has to be under strict Sharia law. So Heather's comments were very poignant in in that light. That's right, Jess. And I want to start by actually speaking about the whole taking us all back to two thousand one, twenty years ago, the invasion, and then after the invasion. Uh, we're going to uh, just uh, remind our viewers and listeners about what uh, George W. Bush at the time right. said that the and, and Taliban were defeated. Let's watch this uh, just as a reminder. Thanks to our military and our allies and the brave fighters of Afghanistan, the Taliban regime is coming to an end. Yet our responsibilities to the people of Afghanistan have not ended. We work for a new era of human rights and human dignity. Well, that's that's kind of painful to have to look at again, Jamal. I mean, what a painful reminder 20 years on after two to two and a half trillion dollars and thousands of American soldiers' lives, tens of thousands injured, to hear what George Bush had to say. What a disaster. Well, I mean, I mean, here is the thing, because, you know, we want to call a spade a spade, and we want to be right on what we say. I mean, uh, I, you and I are critical uh, about uh, the, the kind of this withdrawal, kind of uh, immediate withdrawal, uh, no planning, nothing. But... We're not against Biden for leaving the country. No, I mean, that's this is not the, the sentiment. Issue. That's not the issue. No, I mean, this is the sentiment of the American people. More than 60% right. of Americans, they want to see the United States out of Afghanistan. Right. Uh, thousands of Americans have died. As you mentioned, $2.2 trillion uh, have been spent there. And... You know, let's who owns it? I mean, George W. Bush, the Republican Party, and the warmongers own this whole thing. Like, if you break it right, you own it. And George W. Bush, before we start pointing the fingers, oh, you know, this horrible Biden, look what he did to women, look what he did to the Afghan people. Let's start by in, in, in the beginning. And, and then, by the way, my conversation with Heather Barr, I mean, she recognizes that uh, women in general were weaponized initially. Like if you remember Laura Bush going, you know, we want to free women, like like hiding behind the skirts, I oh, would yeah. say, of women trying to say right. the entire war 
of invading another country, colonizing another country, was because of of uh, the liberation of women. This is nonsense. It is we nonsense. know that, it's right? It's nonsense. But 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 we we keep hearing those history revisionists now saying, "Oh, look at what happened! Look at Biden blew it," as if. You know, it did not start because of a whole different reason, you know, of going just a knee-jerk reaction going after uh, Af- uh, Afghanistan. And then, of course, we're not going to even get to talking about Iraq and the weapons of mass destruction uh, lie uh, for the invasion of but, Iraq. Uh, but but maybe we should, Jamal, to a small extent, but it's part of the larger critical analysis that we have to do. And you and I have been critical of the war in Iraq, the war in Afghanistan, and everything since. So this is not breaking news. And whatever our criticism is of the Biden administration for how they withdrew or the timing of their withdrawal, the the act of the withdrawal itself is something that needed to happen at some point or another. There's just no question about that. But the history, you know, they call Afghanistan, Jamal, the graveyard of empires for a reason. We've spoken about that. Uh, the Russians failed miserably. The British failed miserably. Alexander the Great failed miserably. Why aren't people learning from history? The Americans spent $2.2 trillion, two and a half thousand men and women uh, in the military killed, tens of thousands injured. And what do we have to show for it, Jamal? What do we have to show for it? Nothing, nothing, nothing. We have nothing to show for it. And sadly, People are not going to start, uh, trust the Americans. Not that they trusted them. Going back all the way to to Vietnam, and then and then all these denial. Oh, this is not like what happened in Vietnam. Yes, it is. This is not Sa- This is not Saigon. It's worse. Yes, the images. Yeah. I mean, you and I spoke last week, and we didn't have the full picture yet. We just had actually pictures. We didn't have the videos. The sad videos seeing people clinging to the plane. The sad uh, picture seeing people trying to go to the tarmac, running the tarmac, hanging on the plane, falling from the sky. Right. Right. Sad. It, it's it's very sad, very desperate, uh, a very rushed kind of abandonment. You know, like I said. We don't con- uh, condone the action for the the United States or anyone to invade any other country. But now that they've been there for 20 years, this whole abandonment, and then guess what? Who will pay the price? The Taliban is not going to pay the price because, you know, we showed the video. George Bush declared in that video that the da- Taliban are finished. They're defeated. They're gone. This is 20 years ago. This right. is, was 20 years ago. It was so ignorant. Now... They're back victorious. They're back victorious. Took over the cap- capital in less than two weeks. Took the entire country. And the weaker groups are going to pay the price, starting with uh, women and, and, and girls and, and, and others. But Jamal, And the United States wants to wash its hands right. clean. You cannot do that. You're, you're absolutely right. And I think your, your interview with Heather... Bar is so essential and so important because we uh, and this administration and the Trump administration and the Obama administration and the Bush administration cannot hide behind Afghan women as cover for why they did what they did. They did what they did for political and geo, you know, geopolitical strategic aims. They had the same kind of. Uh, 
imperial designs on Afghanistan and Iraq that the United States has had for forever. And when, when Jamal, are we going to learn the lesson that the idea of, quote, bringing democracy to other people by force is ever going to be a great idea? The only thing that's happened since 2001, Jamal, is a domino effect of successive uh, failures, um, you know, governments failing, failed attempts to reconstruct, and these failed nation states, which are littered throughout the, the Middle East, and unfortunately, to North Africa, too, now. So we're looking at a trajectory now from from the last 20 years that is looking like a complete and utter American foreign policy. And I would say, Jamal, military failure that goes back to, at the very least, George Bush and maybe even before that. By the way, one more quick thing. You played that George Bush uh, soundbite, which was great. But I thought you were going to play the Donald Trump soundbite from earlier this year where he said, we're negotiating with the Taliban. We can trust the Taliban. I mean, he said some crazy things, and it's really. I mean, we could we could we could do this bit, but because uh, people are bringing this up uh, quite a bit, so now uh, you know, if you go to CNN or others, they play that that soundbite, but somehow they skip and don't don't talk about George W. Bush, right. or or talk about why we we have been in Afghanistan for twenty years, and about his victory lap, like uh, the same thing that. He did afterwards, you know, uh, mission uh, accomplished, whatever. Uh, but this is this is actually a speech that he had or, or a press conference saying, declaring victory that now the Taliban are finished and they are not finished. That's the reminder. 20 years later, they're back in power. I'm, they're more powerful than right. ever. That's what I would they, say. They, they are riding. They're, they're using American equipment, weapon and, and Humvees and what have you. And we just handed them over the country in less than seven days, uh, just saying, okay, we want to withdraw. We, we should not have been there to begin with. But now that we have broken the country, you have to take some responsibility. And, and that's why we talk about, we, you know, we had um, Heather Barr from Human Rights Watch talking about the plight of women, because frankly, you see immediately, actually, they had images. Women are being erased, you know, in Afghanistan. I mean, in, in, in a way, yes, the Taliban, I've been listening to the Taliban spokesperson uh, several times, and he has been saying that uh, Zabihullah, his, his name, uh, he, he has been saying that we're going to respect the rights of women, they can go to school, but under... Uh, the Sharia law. I mean, that's the Taliban interpretation right. of the Sharia right. law, not not the Sharia. Just to be to be to be clear, and I don't see women beyond elementary school continuing and going to universities or or traveling unescorted. You know, they have to be escorted by men. They have to all wear the uh, uh, niqab or burqa or whatever. So there are, there are going to be changes, right. and and if if women in Afghanistan want this to happen, that's fine. I have no problem to respect. But if they don't, then you know basically you're going to see them 
getting abandoned. Right. And and we've seen from the images a lot of people want to leave the country. I mean, do you want to have everyone leave the country? Is that is well, that the answer to this? Yeah, that's a really good point. And I'm gonna uh, I'm gonna just I want to say a few things because I actually did speak with some people. Uh, who have family and relatives in Kabul and Afghanistan right now, which I'll I'll come back to in a second. But you said something which is really important, Jamal, which is if you break it, you own it. If you break something, you pay for it. And so now we're going to see, I mean, it's not clear you have 15,000 people in Afghanistan, Jamal, who are American citizens, many of whom are not even in Kabul, who are in the outer you know, provinces of of Afghanistan. How are they going to get to the airport? I spoke with some people uh, earlier today who have family and relatives in uh, in Afghanistan and Kabul. They said there's a hundred thousand people milling around the airport right now, many of whom do not have any papers whatsoever. They're just wanting to get to the airport. The airport is perceived as a safe space. They're wanting to get out. They want to escape. But these are not the people that the United States has committed to coming, you know, to getting out or, you know, either giving visas to special visas or who are American citizens. You have 15,000 American citizens and tens of thousands of other Afghans who have been promised to to be airlifted. And with only 2,000 people being airlifted in the last 24 hours, Jamal, the math doesn't doesn't add up. People cannot get to the airport. Here's the thing. There are people in Kabul who cannot get to the airport who are American citizens. Because of the 100,000 people that are milling around, you have Afghan security checkpoints. You know, they have complete control over who they're letting through, despite what the Americans are saying. And then you have all these thousands of people who can't even get to Kabul, let alone to the airport. So when President Biden says that we'll stay until the mission is done, presumably presumably after the 31st of August, I think it's delusional. I don't see, because the U.S. military is not going to go inside and do rescue covert rescue missions on 15,000 people all over Afghanistan. I think, Jamal, even though what we're seeing right now is horrific, it's going to get a lot worse. It is going to get a, a lot worse. And I, I and we're going to be talking about this more. Uh, I just want to end by saying, uh, which we started a little bit comparing Afghanistan to Iraq. And then I just forgot to mention the security failure. Because in Iraq, we had a major security failure, right. supposedly, intentionally or unintentionally, about Iraq's weapons of mass destruction. I want to remind people of the image, again, of Secretary Powell at that time going to the United Nations, right. talking about yellow cake and I don't know what, about Iraq's nuclear uh, weapons program, which is non-existent. And then now it has been blamed on security failure that the administration, imagine this is the strongest country, biggest country in the world, getting security briefing that is totally false and wrong about Iraq. And now in Afghanistan, what happened is also about security failure Absolutely. because Absolutely. just uh, just a, a few days ago, uh, President Biden said, you know, we have well-trained people there. We have the Afghan security. They'll take care of things. 
And it's not, you know, the Taliban are not going to make it to Kabul. Well, guess what? They were there in less than two weeks, right in the, at the heart of the city. Yeah, but so that's again security failure. No, you're you're absolutely right, Jamal. But it, I would I would kind of even push that analysis a little bit more. I don't think it's a just a security failure. I think it's a failure of intelligence. I think it's a failure of thinking. I think it's a failure of cultural appreciation and understanding. It's a failure of understanding history. It comes from this uh, kind of imperial, as I said before, imperial mentality that we, we know what's best for people. We can make it happen. We can convince people. I would ask you and our viewers and listeners, show me one example where that has really worked in recent memory. I can't think of anything or any time where the United States's military expansionism and colonial exploits has resulted in anything really positive right now. Uh, it's it's all been a disaster. And it's not just a security failure because you and I kind of have been talking about this forever. Many people who know about the history of Afghanistan and of the region know that this policy was destined to be a failure. And I want to just go back to your point, really important, Jamal. It's not just that the Taliban have taken over Afghanistan. They've reconstituted, they're stronger, they're more powerful, they have more people in their ranks, and they have access to all these U.S. weapons. Well, that sounds like a recipe for disaster to me. You're listening to Arab Talk on KPOO San Francisco, 89.5 FM. Uh, your favorite uh, topic here, Jess, <laughs> uh, prime, the former prime minister of Israel, Benjamin Netanyahu. Why does it he? Right? Why does it he vacation in the apartheid state, Jamal? Why is he coming here? So, 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 uh, so opposition. He's now the opposition leader, right. Benjamin Netanyahu, has landed in San Francisco with his wife Sarah and son Yair for a two-week uh, private vacation in the United States. His trip, just to, to remind everyone, is contrary to the recommendation of Israeli health authorities who have advised Israeli citizens against unnecessary international travel due to rising COVID-19 infections, not just in Israel, uh, but, uh, but worldwide. He himself was a critic of others in, in, in Israel for, right. traveling, for traveling uh, abroad. So he uh, was spotted, and uh, we'll be posting these pictures. Uh, they've been all over the internet uh, on Facebook. He was spotted. Uh, he doesn't look too pleased, by the way, just. Uh, he was photographed sitting on a luggage cart at San Francisco International Airport uh, this, this past uh, Sunday. Yeah. Did he look like he was flouting his own country's public health guidelines? Yeah. That's exactly right, Jamal. And we're going to get to this a little bit later. But in case people haven't been paying attention, the so-called miracle, COVID miracle in the apartheid state of Israel, Israel has turned out to be quite the opposite right now. It's They're in the midst of a severe, significant, and what looks like to be a debilitating reemergence of the Delta virus throughout uh, the apartheid state, which is going to wreak havoc. So yes, of course. Well, is it any surprise to you that Benjamin Netanyahu, who flouted international uh, pressure, who went against the ICC, who criticized anybody who criticized him, who was an 
active and avid supporter of ethnic cleansing and is responsible for thousands of Palestinian deaths during his tenure as prime minister. Is it any surprise that he would flout uh, the advice of of the Israeli uh, government? And, you know, he's... He doesn't care. I mean, he's he he felt like being prime minister was, you know, part of uh, his he what he was owed, and he could use these Israeli bank as his private uh, ATM machine. He's got multiple felony, you know, cases against him. His cases are going to trial, and if he loves the apartheid state so much, Jamal, why is he coming to the United States? I, I don't get it, if it's such a wonderful... Well, this is at a time, by the way, Israel has extended COVID rest- restrictions to three years old. Of course. Up to three, as cases surge in Israel now requiring anyone of the age of three to show proof of vaccination or a negative COVID-19 test before entering any indoor Space, restaurants, well, malls, well, etc., and and the infection uh, because of the more contagious uh, Delta variant uh, since late June has been skyrocketing. Sky this is from just quickly from the health yeah. ministry in Israel. They reported seven thousand eight hundred seventy new COVID nineteen right. cases, and also they had more than one hundred twenty people who have died contracting the virus in, in, in the past week, which is really double the monthly uh, uh, total recorded in, in July. Of course, we're talking about a small country, but Israel, as you, as you started by saying, it was the praise of, of, uh, of the nation saying that was a model was like the model for combating COVID. Well, I hate to say I told you so, Jamal, not you, but just to our viewers and listeners, but, uh, I have a theory as to why the apartheid state is having this kind of crazy outbreak right now. If you remember, they made the deliberate medical apartheid decision not to give the vaccine to Palestinians. And I remember having a discussion with you and saying to you, this was going to be a disaster. This was not going to work out. The vi- Even though Palestinians get stopped at checkpoints, uh, the virus didn't. The, the virus doesn't won't be stopped by you know the illegal settlers you know in the West Bank, so the fact that they made this medical apartheid decision, this immoral decision not to give Palestinians the vaccine, I felt at the time put in the entire uh, uh, landmass of historic Palestine at grave risk. But no, no, the the media was celebrating the Israeli miracle of controlling the COVID vaccine. But when you have a landmass that has, you know, 12 million people on it, Jamal, and you choose not to vaccinate well over half of them, what do you think is going to happen? So, uh, you know, the Israeli situation with COVID, Jamal, is going to get worse because Palestinians are still not getting vaccinated. And you still have the ultra-Orthodox extremists Jewish population who are refusing to get vaccinated too. So the Israelis are headed, you know, uh, unsurprisingly to a very desperate situation. They're probably going to go into lockdown mode and uh, it's going to get much worse. They're they're already passing new laws. I mean, they're already saying, you know, if you're not vaccinated, even if you're three years of age and over, 
uh, you have to show a proof of vaccination or a well, test uh, showing that, that you that's are what you not, get for, uh, that negative. That's what you get for practicing medical apartheid. That's what you get from thinking delusionally that if you just vaccinated uh, half, of the, half of the population in historic Palestine that uh, you could dodge you could dodge the COVID bullet. But uh, breaking news, they're not dodging it. And I guess that's just to go back to, you know, former Prime Minister Netanyahu. The One of the reasons he's probably vacationing here is because he couldn't do or go anywhere or do anything if he stayed in the apartheid state. So he came here to get a little break from the legal mess that he's in, as well as the medical mess that he's in. But Listen, Jamal, this COVID-19 pandemic, the Delta variant, the Lambda variant, the explosion of new infections and what we call breakthrough infections, you know, we're talking about people getting infected in the apartheid state, Jamal, who were fully vaccinated and still getting infected because of the nature of the the COVID uh, virus that is mutating now because so many, and the reason it's mutating, Jamal, is because so many people were left unvaccinated. That's the reason it's mutating. That's the that's the reason why the apartheid state is in desperate, terrible situation now. Well, I mean, you keep mentioning, you keep talking about Israel because not just because we want to talk about Israel, and of course we haven't even talked about all its uh, horrendous acts of. Uh, uh, you know, stealing Palestinian lands, ethnic cleansing in Sheikh Jarrah, ethnic cleansing in Silwan, and everything, everything else. But Israel has been used as the model, kind of as the model, because that's the kind of the exp- if, if the model fails with a country of a population that is you could fit it in the smallest state or in in this country pretty much to most of the small states in this country then what's going to happen here just well that i I, that- I could tell you what's going to happen it and we're in the middle of it right now jamal and i'm sorry to to say this to our viewers and listeners is that uh, this covid situation that we find ourselves here in the united states is only going to get significantly worse um the death rates, the infection rates, the positivity rates are skyrocketing now. And Jamal, you and I live in Northern California, which is among the most highly vaccinated places on the planet. And even here, we're seeing, you know, extremely high new, you know, rates of positivity, rates of exposure, rates of hospitalizations, Um in parts of the country right now, I just read about this, the ICUs, Jamal, have closed in Mississippi. There are no beds in Mississippi. Uh, Texas, where you have one of the, you know, deniers as governor, uh, Governor Abbott, has uh, ordered, I don't know how many uh, morgue trucks to put the deceased in because they're running out of, you know, morgue space everywhere in Texas. And then you have the the outrageous uh, behavior of Governor DeSantis in Florida saying, oh, it's okay to spend fifty or $60,000 on a drug, you know, Regeneron, if you get sick, but no, you don't have to wear a mask. So Florida, too, is, 
you know, one of the... Uh, just just a, remi- a reminder that Trump used Regeneron. So well, like, and so is Abbott, not, not. but so is Abbott, by the way. <laughs> so the people who are mass deniers are using these very expensive treatments to save their butts. Uh, w- one quick thing about Florida, there's a school district... One of the mask-denying school districts in Florida had had to send home an 8,000 students because of an, an, an outbreak of COVID just among the students. Um, in my neighborhood, Jamal, just to give you a quick, quick, you know, you know, update is a school principal in one of the small schools here in Northern California. And she told me, because yesterday was the first day of school, back to school at an elementary school, that large numbers of students didn't even come in because their parents tested these kids. These are young kids now, 5 to 11 years old. A large number of them were kept from school because they were, they tested positive. So we're talking about kids between 5 and 11 who couldn't go to first day of school because they tested positive. These are young kids. So if it's that bad, Jamal, on the first day of school, you can only expect, and this is in Northern California. Again, this is in a, in a place which has, you know, above 85 to 90 percent, you know, infection, uh, you know, vaccination rates. And we're, we're really headed for a very bad time. What about the third shot? Uh, coming up in September. Yeah, so I have mixed feelings about that, as you may know. Um, when when less than 5% of the world population has access to vaccines, to give people a third booster shot in this country seems, you know, it's painful to hear that. At the same time, you know, on the other side, you know, if we don't protect ourselves... Uh, we're just going to contribute even more to the outbreak and to the mutations of the virus coming out. So it's a bad scenario whether or not you do the booster shot or you don't. But just so for our listeners to know, it looks like six to eight months after your second shot, if you've gotten Pfizer or, or Moderna, some data are suggesting that you could go as low as 42% protection rate, which is horrible. That means you're basically 50-50, even fully vaccinated, uh, to getting exposed again. So the booster shot takes you back up well past 90%. uh, And But hey, listen, we still are barely 50% fully vaccinated in this country, Jamal. We are not. So I have sad breaking news for all of our listeners and viewers this is not going away. We're going to be living with COVID for the foreseeable future. And because almost 50% of the American, of the U.S. population is not even vaccinated yet, this could get a lot worse. Now, it may not get as, it may not get as bad as the apartheid state because our landmass is much bigger. But in the concentrated areas of the United States, in the big unvaccinated areas of the United States, like the South, you know, things like that. Things are going to get a lot worse. You know, Jabal, I mean, 50% of the admissions into the ICU now are for people under the age of 30. So that's shocking. That's really shocking. Well, it really does not look good. Um, I mean, uh, a few weeks ago, we were thinking there was a glimmer of hope because uh, people are getting, were getting vaccinated and the vaccine works. But as you said now, 
most people uh, now they've been vaccinated for more than four or five months. Yeah, so yeah. the vaccine is kind of weakening. And if you don't take the third shot, we're back to, to square one. Yep. And and hopefully we don't get there. Yeah, you know? hopefully you don't. But Jamal, okay, we're protecting people here, which is great and fine. That's our obligation in a public health system. But, you know, in Africa, in a in parts of Asia, in parts of Central and South America, uh, you're still at below 5% in terms of people who have been vaccinated or even have access to vaccines. So... The, va- the the virus doesn't care about borders. I'm sorry to keep saying that. So if the rest of the world doesn't get vaccinated, more mutations, more virulence, easier transmission. So we're in this really bad cycle. I'm not saying that, you know, we shouldn't do a booster shot if we have it available. But the Biden administration says that they're going to be giving out half a billion doses you know, in the next year or so to other countries. But that doesn't even scratch the surface. You know how many billion people we have in the world. Well, other countries have to also step in. Yeah. You know, uh, yeah. The, I mean, this is, this is, uh, this is, has become, I mean, you're talking about, this is, this is also global medical apartheid. Yes. The haves and have nots. Yes. You know, uh, the EU, they have the money, they're, they're vaccinating. Canada's vaccinating people. The United States vaccinating people. And then you got Africa and you got Southeast Asia, some countries, you know. I mean, if, if you don't share that wealth uh, in the direction of healthcare, what <laughs> you're not going to share it in anything else, right? That's right, Jamal. And, you know, the apartheid state, the Israeli apartheid state, model when you don't fully vaccinate the entirety of a population is really what the rest of the world can look like. You know, the, the, the Israeli model is falling apart because, in fact, the reality is they didn't do a good job vaccinating everybody. They only vaccinated a certain par- portion of the population. And this is what happens. And that's, you know, the that's in the the model system. And you correctly point out if that system fails, what's happening in the rest of the world is 10 times worse in some places. So we can only begin to imagine what's going to happen as we go forward. You've been listening to Arab Talk on KPOO San Francisco 89.5 FM. Go to our website, arabtalkradio.com to download all our previous shows. And we will talk to you next week. See you next week.